Thank you. When I started teaching kids in 2007, they told me I could do it for a quarter and then rotate off, and I'm still doing it 11 years later, so be careful <laughs> if, what they tell you. All right, well, this morning we're going to look at a part of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. And Elaine mentioned Darren's sabbatical that he's on, so several months ago when we planned out the schedule, I was originally going to speak on December 9th, which is well into the Christmas season. And then a few weeks ago, Jonathan Ross called, and he had a conflict today. He was supposed to be on today, and he asked if we could switch. And I was conflicted by this because I'm very solidly a member of Team Thanksgiving as opposed to Team Christmas. So when I was already planning to do this Christmas sermon and was asked to do it on the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, it created conflict for me. You know, I, I, you've heard me talk about different categories of people. You've got mountain people and beach people. You've got people that play games and people that don't play games, people that open their presents on Christmas Day versus Christmas Eve, um, people who are pro-justice or pro-mercy. Well, Team Thanksgiving and Team Christmas very much fit into this. And <clears throat> I'm not sure when or how it started, but it seems to be escalating in recent years. You've got family members who are part of Team Thanksgiving who don't want to invite Team Christmas people to Thanksgiving dinner because they already have their lights up. Or... <laughs> Team Christmas people who play Christmas carols all day long on Thanksgiving Day during the meal just to get under the skin of their Team Thanksgiving family members. You know, some have very pure and faith-based motives for being part of Team Thanksgiving, like keeping the thanks in Thanksgiving. That's not me. That's not my motive at all. Mine's much more selfish and personal. Christmas is busy. I've got to get in the attic. I've got to get down Christmas decorations. You have to shop. You have to run from event to event. And Thanksgiving is just so much more relaxing. I don't have to do anything except eat and watch the Cowboys. So <laughs> that's why I'm a member of Team Thanksgiving. But Jonathan did assure me that Thanksgiving is officially over after the Cowboys game ends. So apologies to my Team Thanksgiving teammates, but we are going to press forward today with a part of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the message that, that we've heard so much about through most of our lives. The fact that God came in the form of a human, Jesus, as our Savior, to save us from sin and ensure our eternal salvation. That's obviously a very central and important part of the Christmas story. But today, instead, we're going to look at another purpose of Jesus' birth, which was to solve this problem that we as humans had created for ourselves, this problem of fear and being afraid, and, and the impact that his birth and the things that should fill us because of that, hope and joy and peace, should have on how we live our life every single day between now and when we get to eternity. We overcomplicate it, but God tries to keep it simple for us. Will you pray with me as we get started? Lord, just thank you for our time together this morning and pray that you will be present, that you will bless it, and that uh, through your word, through your scripture, Lord, we will understand who we are in you and, and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get to the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, we need to go back and start at the very beginning. In the garden, Genesis chapter 3, this is shortly after they had eaten the apple and sin had entered the world. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8, 9, and 10, it says this. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. 
Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. They're afraid, and that causes them to hide and separate themselves from God. Now, it's interesting, it doesn't say that they were ashamed because they were naked, it says they were afraid. So what we're learning here is that the very first consequence of sin entering the world is fear. Now, why, why were they afraid? I mean, to the point where they felt it necessary to hide from their creator. They know God, they knew he created them, they knew he was not going to harm them, they were not in danger in his presence. They didn't need to be afraid, but they were. Because that fear that entered as a consequence of sin distorts our perspective and causes this separation from God. Now, I want to make clear couple of different types of fear, and let's make sure we know which one we're talking about today. There's, there's feelings of fear created by situations that we may be in that may put us in danger, maybe we're being attacked. Um, those feelings of fear are normal. They can be healthy because they cause us to respond to a situation and remove ourselves from the danger that we may be in. That type of fear can protect us. The other type of fear that we're talking about today is entirely different, though. It's, it's a state of being afraid. It's a state that we live in, a state of anxiety, a state of lack of peace, of lack of contentment, of lack of being settled. And it's that type of fear that starts controlling and dictating our behavior. And, and this is what was going on in the Adam and Eve story. They became afraid, and it was more than just a feeling because of some limited situation. God was not going to harm them. But now, because of this fear, they are aware of their earthly circumstances. They're aware of their past. They're aware of what they had done. That creates guilt and shame, and it starts controlling and dictating their behavior and our behavior. And it causes us to hide and separate ourselves from God. And that's what we do. We, we let this fear control our behavior, and, and the behavior that results out of that place is not good, and it's not what God intended. There's somebody way smarter than me that can explain it much better, though, if you'll turn your attention to the video. How feel you? Cold, sir. Afraid, are you? No, sir. See through you. We can. Be mindful of your feelings. Your thoughts dwell on your mother. I miss her. Mm, afraid to lose her, I think. Mm? What has that got to do with anything? Everything. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. So you're not going to find the book of Yoda between Luke and John. <laughs> but I still think he's on to something here. And I like how the kid says, what does that have to do with anything? And he says, fear is everything. And these are the things it leads to, anger and hate and suffering. And ultimately this separation 
from God that's caused by this state we live in of being afraid. Now, I'm willing to bet that if you take an honest look at those areas of your life where you're struggling the most, that it's rooted in some sort of fear. Fear of some circumstances, fear of the unknown, fear of dying, fear of success, fear of failure, fear of what other people think of us, fear of what the future holds. Are we going to be provided for and taken care of? Are we going to have our needs met? Fear of what's going to happen with our kids. Are they going to be protected? Are they going to be taken care of? Fear of change. Fear of things that are unfamiliar or different or that we don't understand. Fear of people that are unfamiliar or different or that we don't understand. You know, in my personal life, when I was growing up and during high school and, and even some during college in my early 20s, I had a fear of what people thought of me. I, I was very and overly concerned with what others thought and what their perception of was me was of me. And, and I have no doubt that that fear affected and impacted decisions I made and, and likely caused me to miss opportunities and things that I was meant to step into and do because of this fear. Now, <clears throat> today, my wife and others close to me tell me that I may have gone too far to the other extreme of being overly unaffected by other people and what they think, but that's a topic for a different day. But that's what we do when we live in this state of fear. Our, our behavior, our outputs are, are not what was intended. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul tells us what was intended. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. What Paul is telling us here is that when we live in the power of the Spirit at work within us and trust in the things of God, this is what our behavior and the outputs in our life should look like. And if those things aren't present, it's because of this separation from the things of God caused by being afraid of something that's in our lives and living in the middle of that fear. And it manifests itself in our relationships, our families, our jobs, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, and the results and the outputs and the behaviors are the opposite of these things that Paul was writing about. And we find an absence of love in the form of hate and anger, and an absence of joy and peace in the form of discontentment and anxiety and worry in an absence of kindness in the form of judgmental and a critical spirit, absence of goodness, absence of faithfulness and trust in the form of a desire to control the things around us and control our circumstances and control things that we were never meant to control. Our fear leads to separation, which leads to the opposite of the things that are offered to us when we're in Christ. So, Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, why did Jesus come? We're familiar, they came to Bethlehem, no room in the inn, they go to the manger, Jesus is born, nearby in the field there were shepherds watching over their flock 
and an angel appeared. And look at what the angel said. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And the angel said unto them, Be not afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now for many years when I read this story, and I read those words, Be not afraid, I thought about one meaning of it, which, which is, is part of the meaning, which is these shepherds are standing in a field and there's angels appearing, so they're scared. And the angel's telling them to calm down and chill out. That is part of it. But if you consider that this is the very first sermon that was delivered, and the very first sentence of the very first sermon after Jesus was born, and you consider it in the context of this human experience going back to the garden where the first consequence of sin was fear and a state of being afraid, those words have a much, much deeper meaning than just telling them to calm down. Christ came, and the very first message in the very first sermon is don't be afraid. Now, to be fair, God didn't wait for this moment to start delivering this message to us, or at least trying to deliver this message. It appears hundreds of times throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in many different settings, in many different circumstances, but the message is always the same. Let's look at some of them in the Old Testament. Genesis 15.1, Abraham is questioning God's promises to Abraham, and God says to Abraham, don't be afraid. Genesis 26.24, to Isaac, God is confirming the promises that he had made to Abraham, and he tells Isaac, don't be afraid. Genesis 46.3, this time to Jacob, again confirming the promises he had made to Abraham and Isaac. He tells Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. My promises are true. Numbers 21.34, this time to Moses, don't be afraid of him for I have delivered him into your hands. Deuteronomy 31.6, this is a well-known verse. So be strong and courageous, do not be afraid and do not panic before them. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you, he will neither fail you nor abandon you. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. 2 Kings 1.15, the angel of the Lord appearing to Elijah, telling him, do not be afraid. Psalms 23.4, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me, your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Ecclesiastes 11.10, the writer says, banish anxiety from your heart. Isaiah 12.2, Isaiah writes, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Daniel 10.12, don't be afraid to Daniel. Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God tries to remind his people who he is and what he's done for them. And after seeing Adam and Eve hide from him and the resulting separation, he tries to tell us, stop being afraid. Because he knew that it was those fears that cause and create this separation. And because we don't learn, and we can't understand, and we don't get the message, then he sends Jesus. And immediately, the angels appear to the shepherds in the field, and the very first word they say is, be not afraid. And then, throughout the New Testament, we see it over and over and over again, and I know you're familiar with some of them, but we're going to go through them. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus himself says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. 
The same thing in Luke 12.4. He says, don't be afraid of those who will kill the body and after that can do no more. Matthew 14.27, he says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Matthew 17.7, he says to his disciples, get up, don't be afraid. How often do we need to hear that? Get up. Matthew 28.5, the angel to the women after the resurrection, don't be afraid. Matthew 28.10, Jesus himself after the resurrection, don't be afraid. And in Mark 6.50, he appears to his disciples, don't be afraid. Luke 5.10, Jesus is talking to Peter about Peter's future and fishing for people, and he tells Peter, don't be afraid. John 6.20, it is I, don't be afraid. John 16.33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, don't be afraid, have peace. Acts 18.9, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, don't be afraid, speak up. Hebrews 13.6, the writer says, what can mere mortals do to me? 1 John 4, 8, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. And in Revelation 1, 17, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. This is the central message of the gospel. Because of Christ and because of who he is and because of what he did, then we have no need to be afraid. Eugene Peterson was a pastor and an author of more than 30 books, ministry of about 30 years. We know him best as the guy who translated the message version of the Bible. And he died recently, back in October at the age of 85. And at his funeral, his son gave his eulogy. And he said that his dad had everybody fooled for 30 years of ministry with all the books that he'd written, and all the sermons that he'd given. And in reality, he only had one sermon and one message. And it was a secret that Eugene had shared with his son years earlier and whispered into the hearts of all those around him for 30 years of ministry. And it was this. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. And he is relentless. That is the message of Luke chapter 2. Because of that, because we know God is with us, because he know, we know he loves us and he's coming after us and he's relentless, then there is no reason to be afraid. About a year before he died, when he was, his health was failing and he was ending his, his ministry, Eugene Peterson talked about the end of that ministry and his, his future death, and he said this, I have no idea how it's going to work out, but I will tell you this, I'm not afraid. That's what is available to us when we trust and when we hope. Instead of fear, then real change and real impact happens. The separation from God disappears and the things of his kingdom become real in our everyday lives. Life's hard, always has been, always will be. There's a lot of bad and scary stuff happening all around us. But if you want to change things for the good, something has to shift, something has to change. You cannot be led by fear and expect to have an impact for the things of God. It doesn't mean we don't still have feelings of fear. But that's overcome by truth and hope 
and the knowledge that God is with us, that he's for us, that he's coming after us, and that he's relentless. There's a Facebook page called Humans of New York, and it's devoted to just telling the stories of everyday people. And not too long ago, they started telling stories of people who were involved in the Civil War in Rwanda back in, the, in 1990. And what happened in Rwanda in 1990 was 100 days of genocide and mass slaughter of the minority Tutsi population at the hands of the majority that was in power and government. And during that 100 days, over 800,000 Rwandans that were part of this minority Tutsi population were killed. It was 70% of the Tutsi population. And in the middle of that, there's a story of this pastor. And he heard about these meetings that were starting to happen. This is a picture of him and his church. He heard about these meetings that were happening. They were openly advertised on community microphones and on the radio, and their stated pur purpose was to talk about current issues. But the reality was that these meetings were intended to start organizing these mass killings. And this pastor was invited to attend, but he never did. And then the killings began, and people started running to his church for sanctuary, saying, hide us. So he took them in. One young man arrived and said, they killed my parents, and all of us are being hunted. Pastor was terrified, but he tried not to show it. So he kept bringing the people inside his church and inside the gates. And on the first day, he brought over 300 people in, and he started hiding them everywhere he could find, ceiling, floor, bathrooms. And on the first evening, the militia showed up at his front door of his church with guns, machetes. They'd been told that this pastor was hiding people inside the church, and they demanded to search his property. And he stood in the doorway, and he said, if you're going to search, you're going to have to kill me first. So they left, but promised to be back. And one turned and said, thank you for gathering the cockroaches all in one place, because it'll be easier to kill them here. And then days passed, and their food ran out, and some church members answered and brought food in at night. They said the nights were the worst because they could hear the gunfire and the screams up in the surrounding hills. They thought they were next. Nobody slept. The pastor and his wife lost tons of weight. Most of their friends abandoned them and pretended not to know them. And only one other pastor stood by their side. He did show up one day and warned them of a planned attack on the church. So the pastor and his wife talked and they decided they were ready to die. And the next time the killers showed up, there were 50 of them, again with guns and machetes. And this time, they pushed through the pastor, they entered the church, they started pulling people out of these hiding places, they drug them, kicking and screaming outside. Some were begging for mercy, some were silent, ready to die. They put them in lines, these people started saying their last prayers, and the pastor started looking at the, the mob of killers. And he started recognizing some of their faces, some who had claimed to be Christians, some who were even members of his congregation. And when he recognized a face, he would call that person by name, and he said, I know what's going to happen to me when I die, what's going to happen to you?
And then he went to the next one, and the next one, and he repeated that over and over again. And then the killers started arguing amongst themselves, and nobody wanted to be the first one to kill that day. And they kind of turned on each other, then they began to leave one by one until they all left. And not one person in that church hiding that day died. Three more weeks went by, and then they were rescued by the Rwandan Patriotic Front. All 300 people survived the genocide by hiding in this pastor's church. And when it was over, the pastor said this. He said, I can't remember all their faces. Life has taken us to many different corners. Some of them have left the country to begin new lives, but many of them still call me father. I've given away the bride in several different wedding ceremonies. Occasionally, people will randomly show up on my doorstep with drinks, and I'll say to them, you were with us in the church that day, weren't you? And we will embrace. And when I look back, I believe the genocide could have been stopped if more pastors had taken a stand. We were the ones with influence. The killers belonged to our congregations, and we could have held them back. But instead, we did nothing, and every pastor had a different excuse. Some said they didn't know things would get so bad. Some said they were too afraid. Some said the government was too powerful to oppose. But when you're standing aside while people die, every excuse is a lame one. I'm not telling this story to show how God can step in and rescue us and protect us from dangerous and difficult situations, although we know that he clearly can. But instead, I'm, I'm telling this story to show the impact that can occur when we take seriously the message of that very first sermon after Jesus was born to not be afraid. Lives are changed. Chains and addictions are broken. Hearts and eyes are opened to the things of God, to who He is and to who we are in Him. And instead of a separation from God because of our fear, we develop a hope and a trust in God despite our fears. And despite the very real and scary things that are going on around us. And when that happens, then lives are filled with the fruits of the Spirit that Paul wrote about. Peace and joy and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness. So this year, when we go about the Christmas season, and you hear the story told, let's, let's look at the Christmas message not only for what it means for eternity and the hope we have in that, but also for what it means for tomorrow and the next day and next week. And what can happen and the impact that it can occur if we will follow that simple message of the angels in the first sermon to be not afraid. Thank you.